Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MilkStreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Throughout my whole career, I've been amazed that if you walk up to somebody with a notepad and a pen and you ask them personal questions, they feel compelled to tell you. You know, and and food people especially are helpful. You know, they're in the hospitality business. 
That was Kim Severson, a food correspondent at The New York Times. Today on Milk Street, Severson talks about the art of the interview and how she sussed out the truth about Paula Dean, Alton Brown, and also Thomas Keller. I'll be speaking with Kim in just a bit. First, Crystal King's recently published novel, Feast of Sorrow, is a page-turner about the Roman gourmet, Marcus Gavius Apicius. Crystal, how are you? Good. Uh, the Feast of Sorrow. Why don't you just give us the, the 30 seconds on what this book is about? It's a book about the man with his name on the oldest known cookbook. And he was a rich um, Roman, that the wealthiest in all of Rome, first century A.D., time of Tiberius and Augustus. And he traveled the world looking for luxurious ingredients for his uh, meals. And he aspired to be gastronomic advisor to Caesar. You describe in great detail in the book the meal. Now, it starts with uh, sort of a muse bouche, right? That's what we call it now. So, you, so you'd have a salad, some melon. What would you start with? Roman meals always started with eggs, actually, and they always ended with fruit. Um, in fact, there's a medieval saying that I don't know the Latin for, but it means from eggs to apples, which means from beginning to end. And uh, so they always would have some sort of egg dish. And whether or not that was actual eggs that were hard-boiled or soft-boiled in some cases, or if it was a, a frittata type of dish, things always started with eggs. One other thing that's really inherently Roman is the idea of three courses. But the dishes didn't always necessarily correspond with what we have now. Sometimes you have savory and sweet mixed in there. And the other interesting thing is, is that they wouldn't drink during the meal. That was always really? saved for after the meal. You wouldn't have, oh. you wouldn't mix your wine and food. So here's a recipe. Beet leaves stuffed with a mixture of chopped leeks, coriander, cumin, and raisins bound together with flour and water. Um, it really sounds, I mean, I want to go home and make that. That actually sounds very modern. It sounds very autolingy to me, right? There are so many dishes within the original Apicius cookbook that are extremely accessible for us today or accessible with just a few modifications. There's a recipe for French toast. French toast hmm. is an ancient Roman recipe. Who knew? Um, or, or Gallic toast, I guess. I suppose. That's a it. great way to think yes. about it. Now, honey cakes are mentioned all the time in your book. What are honey cakes? So uh, honey cakes have been found in um, historical cooking all the way back to the ancient Egyptians in the 3000 BC era. And the Greeks and the Romans all st started making sweet breads at around the same time. And they would have basically mixing flour and water and um, honey and eggs potentially. But then one of the other interesting things about the way that humans throughout history have worshipped their gods is that food always ends up being a component in some way or another. Even today in, in all of our core religions, food plays a key point. And so what in antiquity, in ancient um, Roman and Greek, and probably I would imagine in Egyptian myths, there were banquets that were served to the gods. And so honey cakes became something that they would offer up as a sacrifice. So you could sacrifice meat, um, wine, olive oil, and honey cakes um, were something that was kind of a sweet thing that the gods might like. You rave about Parthian chicken, and you claim you still make it. What is Parthian chicken? And if I wanted to make it for dinner, what would I do? So Parthia was a country that is actually modern-day Iran, and um, there's um, the re the recipe that I make is actually just a slightly modified version from that of historian Sally Granger, who translated the original Apicius cookbook, and um, it's a very simple recipe. It has fish sauce. It has... Um, Asafetida. It has um, some sweet white wine. We try to use a raisin wine, um, like a, there's a, a Greek um, muscat that we use. There's um, pepper. is is always a very luxurious caraway. spice. Caraway, and um, you basically put it all together. Put the chicken in the oven. You baste it in the sauce. And it comes out with this incredible crust and mm. moist. It's some of the best chicken. We make it all the time because so this, it's this is a braised fast. chicken, essentially. Essentially, yeah. You just—it's mm. so simple. You put the chicken in the dish, and you put the sauce on it. You stick it in the oven and cook it up. So okay, so I'm going to Apicius's grand Saturday night do. It's three courses. Uh, ends with fruit. 
Um, what are some of the highlights? So if you're starting out, it would probably be small things, um, cheeses and almonds and they, their vegetables tended to be more beans, like legumes. And so there were certainly some lentil dishes that might be common then. The meat dishes are where things get a little bit crazier. Uh, crane and flamingo were very popular. The fried tongues uh, pheasants. Of, yeah. of pheasants and, and crane and, and flamingos. Pliny writes about um, how f- Apicius says that flamingo tongues have the most delicate flavor. So did a Roman house... Uh, have a basement? Was that typical or not? I don't know if that was always typical. They definitely had underground areas where, for example, they um, had um, heated water areas for their baths. Hmm. And so this is one thing that's also I found fascinating is that um, the ancient Romans, particularly the wealthy, they had running water. And they had running water. If you were wealthy enough, you could have one of the aqueducts have a little tributary to your house, which was unheard of for centuries um, until, um, you know, we finally had modern plumbing. It always makes me think of Monty Python's Life of Brian. What are the Romans given us lately? Aqueducts. Yes. Viniculture. Well, besides that. <laughs> Crystal King, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Crystal King, author of the book Feast of Sorrow. As always, you can subscribe and listen to Mill Street Radio as a podcast. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. Now let's take some of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Of course, she's the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am ready to take those questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Tani from Boulder. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. Good. So I used to live in New York City. I lived at Elevation, and now I live in Boulder. And I'm having, I think, altitude issues, but I'm not sure with my baking. Everything is sticking to the pan. When I bake anything, no matter what kind of pan I try, it sticks. What are you baking? Give me an example. Like blueberry muffins. Right. And I've tried silicone. I've tried paper. I use gold touch pans. And I've tried greasing them with everything imaginable. Have you used the baking spray versus just spray, the one that's got the flour in it? That doesn't work. And it too bad because I was going to mention Gold Touch because that. <laughs> yes, I love them and they worked absolutely perfect at sea level. And I'm using the same recipes. I know you're supposed to adjust for altitude, but it doesn't seem to be having an effect. And when you me. season the Gold Touch, did you try melted butter? Did you try soft butter? What have you done? Everything? I guess it would be soft butter. Right. But I've also tried coconut. I've tried canola. Have you tried parchment greased and floured? That sounds like a lot of work. But that's the ultimate. <laughs> I mean, that that's like the triple level. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Well, and it sticks to paper. Like if I use like a parchment baking cup, mm-hmm. the only thing I can think of is that I've changed my sugar to raw sugar. Oh. So do you think that could be a problem? Yes. I've done that too sometimes. Okay. And if I don't know about sticking, but I think the results were a little bit different. Everything seems to be more moist. It is. If it touches the pan and sort of caramelizes and gets sticky, I would spray the pan with a, okay. a baking spray. Okay. I would put down parchment either just on the bottom or if you have a real problem, also the sides. If, the sides, And yeah. then spray it again. And stick. then flour it as well. And then, you know, I guess so. Yeah. What about the sugar if that's... I don't know for sure, but it is very different. So I would try the regular Domino's. Sugar is sugar Um, is sugar is sugar. I mean, I know it's sort of nice to use something that seems more natural, but the fact of the matter is it's all sugar. So maybe you want to lower your standards on that one and go back to white sugar. I I would definitely try that. Yeah. I guess that would help. I could make meringues again because those aren't working at all. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I would do. Great. And I can make anything that's like popovers or my bread is beautiful. That's because it doesn't have sugar in it, right? Yeah. It's got to be something to do with the sugar. Sugar, yeah. It's been a challenge just baking here and cooking in general. Yeah, I can imagine. But it's beautiful, isn't it? The last time I was in Boulder was 1970. There was a rock concert up in the mountains somewhere. If I learn how to make blueberry muffins that don't stick, I'll make you one when you come back. Yeah. When then you come. you got to put some stuff in it to remind me of the 70s. Just so. Yes. Well, you know, it was the 70s. Well, now it's legal. Yeah. Okay. Now it's legal. All right. Tani, thank you. Thanks for calling. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Benjamin Hall. How can we help you? I have a question about eggplants. Okay. They usually fry them or 
try to cook eggplant parmesan. Let's see. I'm allergic to tomatoes. We just did a recipe in Milk Street, July-August issue. And so prepare a grill if you have a grill. All the coals on one side or heat up the burners on one side of the gas grill. Get it nice and hot. Cut the eggplants in half lengthwise. Brush them with some oil and salt. And then put them over the hot grill for about 10 minutes. So you get a nice dark scoring to it. And by the way, score the eggplants. Crosshatch them. Yes. Pull them off. Flip them over. Cook side up on the cool side of the grill. Brush some crushed or minced garlic with oil on top and cook it about 30 minutes till it's fully cooked through. And then just scoop it out, put it in a bowl, and then mix it with parsley and mint and some sesame seeds, etc. And it's fabulous. Gets it's really, really sweet good. and creamy, right? Yeah. Or, or you can just mash it up in the skin if you want and serve it the same way. But uh, parsley, as I said, mint, sesame seeds, toasted sesame seeds, a little lemon zest. It's really simple to do. This is the, how they actually do it in the Middle East. One of our editors was in Tel Aviv a few months ago, and they cooked them this way. It's the best we've ever had, and it's also simple to do. So I give that a shot. Okay, I will. Sounds almost like a hummus. Well, it's a very simple preparation, and you get to taste the eggplant. Okay. But the parsley, mint, lemon zest, et cetera, give it a nice flavor. When we had it, it was just the best we ever had. So I, I give that a shot. I'll try that, sir. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you. Yeah. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a pressing culinary question, just give us a ring anytime, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. You can also send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Dave calling from Houston. Hi, Dave from Houston. How are you? Hi, Dave. I'm doing well. Entering the warm season, is it? Oh, <laughs> that's yeah. to put it mildly. Sorry, now I never have to shovel. Uh, oh, you, okay. Got a point there. Okay, now we're even. Yeah, okay. Thanks, yeah. thanks for that. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so how can we help you? I really enjoy udon noodles, and I like to buy them uh, fresh at my local Asian market. The instructions on the package, and frankly in every recipe I've seen that uses them, says that the way to prepare them is to drop them in a big pot of boiling water and blanch them for about a minute, and then they're done. Well, they come in a package, it's basically like a brick, and if you just drop them in, they just kind of sit there like a brick. A minute is nowhere near long enough to detangle them. And if you try to gently do it, you know, with a wooden spoon or something like that, they just end up coming apart, and then you end up with a bunch of one-inch noodles. And I did some searching online and just really couldn't find anybody who could suggest any solution to this, so I thought I'd turn to the experts. Bowl of warm water. Before you cook Yeah, it. before you cook them. Just put in a bowl just of warm water, warm and water. Uh, pretty quickly they'll loosen up and use your fingers, and that should do it. I think that's the solution. But at this Asian market, do the folks who work there, do they speak English? Not really. Okay. Here's my trick. If I go into a store like that, and I, don't, I can't figure out what brand to buy or something, I ask someone else who's shopping. I always ask somebody well, so, else. So maybe you might want to start yeah. chatting uh, with the other shoppers when you're there and That's ask and idea. ask them, yeah, why not? But I do think the warm water would work, too. Yeah, the warm water def- about, definitely work. About how long should I expect that to take? I think two or three minutes. Just put it in the water, and it's going to hydrate, and it's going to start to separate, and just use your fingers to pull them apart. Just a few minutes. It would be pretty quick. Okay, I just have to be patient. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm not That's good hard. at that. That's hard. I'm not good at that either. That's the worst. Yes. <laughs> well, I'll give that a try. Thank okay. you so much. Yeah, okay. my pleasure. Thanks, Thanks Dave. Thanks for calling. Bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, I chat with Kim Severson, food correspondent at The New York Times. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, Man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. 
My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Kim Severson is a journalist at The New York Times who also covers the world of food. Her recent profiles of Paula Dean, Alton Brown, and Thomas Keller have merged hardcore journalism with the world of food celebrities. So today on Milk Street, Kim gives us an insider's look into how she prepares for and also navigates the very tricky waters of high-profile interviews. Kim, how are you? Good. How are you, Chris? I'm well. You've been busy. You've uh, done some very big profile interviews in the New York Times in the last 18 months. Paula Dean, Alton Brown, Thomas Keller— and I thought it would be interesting to talk to you about the art of the interview. So the first line of the Alton Brown interview was, the afternoon sun had melted most of the ice in the mason jar that held Alton Brown's sangria. I thought that actually was filled with information. So when you first go to interview somebody like that, in the first minute, you have to come up with a strategy or a way of proceeding. How do you how do you think about that? Well, the beginning of a good interview happens a long time before the actual interview in which you are batting away layers of publicists or you're trying to figure out why this particular person, particularly uh, people who are at a certain level, would want to speak to you and, and be in the New York Times. I mean, it helps to be working for an organization that in spite of all the accusations of fake news, we still believe uh, in 
good journalism at the New York Times. And uh, so that that helps. And then the key is to just try to want to hang out with them. In Alton's case, he had written this cookbook, and he's you know notoriously closed about his life. But he, he wrote this cookbook he felt was very personal, and it was the food he cooks at home or the food that he most loves. So this was a great opportunity to say, well, let's get together and cook. Now, I knew the day was going to go well. We, we got there in the morning with a photographer, and he said, I want to make you my breakfast cocktail. And I thought, this is going to go really, really well today <laughs> for me. Uh, you tell quite a story. Uh, do you think when Alton Brown read that piece, he realized he was telling a very intimate story? Uh, I do not think that Alton Brown loved that piece at the end of the day. I s- sent a little email to him telling him thank you, and um, it's he's pretty much ghosted me since, which is fine. You know, it, that happens. Ideally, you have a good long relationship with somebody, but... Uh, I don't think that I will be getting asked over to Marietta for sangria on the porch swing anytime soon. (laughs) So while you were interviewing him, you mentioned there were some things you noticed relevant to his personal life, but not necessarily a story that uh, you did not report on. As a New York Times reporter, uh, is anything fair game that you notice while you're interviewing someone, or does that have to be spelled out ahead of time? Uh, I think um, I prefer to go into any interview with no restrictions, like I think any good journalist would. But, you know, it's it's a negotiation. I, I don't know. I, I guess there are things that you uh, need to know about a story uh, that aren't necessarily something that the person would want to go on the record about, but that inform greatly how you write a story. And so those are valuable. So as a journalist, you go, well... I'm going to trade off agreeing to not make this public, but I don't want to be surprised anywhere. I want to know where everything is. I want to know, you know, see all the shelves in the closet just so I'm not going to be caught off guard. And then, you know, I, for a reader, there's if, if you're going to put something in a story that seems shocking or, or um, unusual, you've got to explain to the reader why you're putting that in. You, you know, you want them to understand this person. We're all human beings. I mean, these are... These are food people. You know, I want to be honest and straight up, but we're not talking about somebody that uh, is running the country or um, has committed a heinous crime. When you interview someone, you, you alluded to this in talking about Alton Brown. I think what you were trying to or did say was that the interviewee, the person you're interviewing, has a need sometimes or desire to tell you their story because they haven't really been able to tell that story to anybody outside of their circle. So the the confessor situation, is that part of interviewing and understanding why people want to tell you their story? You know, I think people ultimately want to tell you things. I, I my, Throughout my whole career, I've been amazed that if you walk up to somebody with a notepad and a pen and you ask them personal questions, they feel compelled to tell you. Hmm. You know, and, and, and food people especially are helpful. You know, they're in the hospitality business. And I think... You know, the news cycle is so quick and they've got to have a social media profile and they've got, you know, all of that is so uh, relentless and demanding and and artificial to a large degree that when someone sits down and has some sincere questions about what motivates them and what their life is like, I think it's refreshing. I think people do want to talk. Well, that brings me to the obvious question is, what is a story? I always think about what story would I like to tell at a dinner party? You know, what do, what do I find interesting? What do I like to read? And what stories do I like to hear? And so if it um, triggers that little piece in me where I'm like, oh, really? Tell me more about that? Then I figure it'll do the same for readers. And I think Alton, who's, you know, is really a product of food television. I mean, he specifically saw that food television was going to be a thing and decided that he would get into the game. He had some cooking background, but it wasn't his first love, you know, theater, I think, was his first love. So he saw this convergence of the food world and the media world happening uh, long before many of the rest of us did and figured out a way to be part of that. Uh, And now here he's emerging. He's on stage. When I interviewed him, he was about to start a a week-long run uh, with his stage show on Broadway. Uh, He had this new personal book. He was trying to kind of remake himself. He had, you know, gone through this spectacular divorce from... Uh, his wife, 
he had left this uh, very conservative Christian church that he had been a, a member of. I mean, it was just a, a moment in his life when a transition was happening. He was pivoting. And it's always interesting when people are pivoting in their life. Paula Dean's a different story. Uh, let me just ask about that. So when there's an interview or profile, I guess it was profile and a story, which doesn't cause a problem but reports on a situation which then snowballs into disaster. As a reporter, you're just there to tell the story in the best possible way, and whatever happens, happens as a result of that. Right. And the Paula Dean case is, you know, she was uh, uh, she was in trouble. There were issues around her racial views. It was happening at a time in America where we were in another chapter of trying to, to unpack and deal with the racial problems in this country. And again, it, it came at a time where we were using food to kind of figure out our right. social our social problems now. So that was a, a running news story. And I part of that story was going to Savannah and finding a woman who had been her soul sister and cooked with her from the very beginning, who was living in a trailer and getting paid $11 an hour and who was brave enough to sort of talk about what she'd heard from Paula Dean and and Paula Dean's attitude toward the African-Americans that this woman worked with. That was a a news story and done under tighter conditions, and it was a much more difficult story to, to pull out. Um, again, what most people had heard about at that time was just this transcript from a right. deposition that was old and that Paula had used a, a racial epitaph, you know, decades earlier. No one really knew what was happening there. And certainly Paula Dean's camp was pulled down. Well, I, I th- the Paula Dean piece, I thought, was really interesting because there were two stories. There's, there's the racism story. But I, I did think the story was Dora Charles, uh, the African-American cook who'd, who'd been her partner, quote-unquote, from the beginning. And there was that one quote in your piece, which I thought was the story, and you probably agree. Uh, Stick with me, Dora. This is Paula Dean talking. And I promise you one day, if, if I get rich, you'll get rich. And I thought it was a story about friendship and working with another person and not fulfilling your promise to them. It was a very personal story. And I think, I think your Dora Charles interview and story brought it home to people in a very personal way. Is that, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's a story about drive, um, and I think it's a story about uh, education levels and one person who has access to a world and another who maybe has the raw material that, that could make someone a star. But, uh, you know, it was just this great clash. It's like, you know, the, the person who has the great tune in their head, and then you have the right. singer who pulls that tune and, and makes a big record out of it, and the songwriter gets gets nothing. It's, it was, it's a classic story, you know? So I think it worked on lots of levels. I mean, certainly there was a great racial overlay there, but also it was a story about ambition right. and friendship, and, you know, the train was leaving the station, and, and Paula jumped on it, and, uh, and Dora wasn't able to. It was interesting. Let's move on to Thomas Keller, which is in between Alton Brown and Paula Dean, Here's what's interesting about that interview, I thought, was it turned into a social statement in a way because there's a quote, couture. This is not from you. This is someone you interviewed. And we know haute couture appropriates for minorities and other urban communities. In other words, this very white, classic French tradition of very expensive multi-course dining is for rich white people, and it's cooked by rich white people, I guess. And it's no longer in keeping with the nature of today's culture. And that's really where the story ended up. And I thought that was an interesting turn. Would that kind of comment be applied to someone like Chef Pepin or Paul Bocuse, or was this particularly apt in Thomas Keller's case? Well, there's been so much talk about cultural appropriation and so much talk about expanding our culinary view in this country. So that that issue was big. And I ended up talking to people who I just kept calling people saying, why was Thomas Keller important? Why did he matter to you? Why did he, he matter to you? And came upon some, particularly one chef who's uh, is Indian background is cooking in Oakland, who was all about Thomas Keller and kind of changed her mind. And she had a great quote in there about... Thomas needs to go on his woke journey. So <laughs> when I talked to Thomas about 
uh, the issues of diversity in his kitchen, which is largely male and largely white. Um, it, it was just struck me as the very dialogue we're having all in kitchens all over the place right now. So in that way, you know, the great chef Thomas Keller, who has, you know, changed the way people cook in professional kitchens in America, you know, it was I think that was a very relevant issue for a profile of him. Let's just follow up on cultural appropriation, which we've talked about before. So let's take Paula Wolfert, who's much beloved in the food community. You know, here she was in the 70s in Morocco, an outsider trying to get people to let her copy recipes and watch them cook, which sometimes was easy to do and sometimes not. But she was an outsider. She was a Moroccan, and she introduced that food, the food of the Mediterranean, to many American home cooks. Why isn't Paula Wolford up for that same criticism then? It's a good question. Diana Kennedy, same thing. Right. Uh, Rick, Rick Bayless has been really the poster boy for yes. Columbusing Mexican food, um, I think unfairly. These folks, I think, went out at a time when no one from our country had gone out and found these kinds of foods and really spent time in home cooks' kitchens and really did the work. You know, Rick Bayless had his little typewriter and spent five years in Mexico uh, recording uh, how people were cooking. Now, Paula Wolfert was on the scene now and was out in Morocco gathering food and trying to make herself the expert. I think it, I think she would be received differently. I really do. I think the times have changed. Then, you know, you certainly are facing that yourself. You're out trying to write about bringing global techniques to the American kitchen. Do you feel like you're getting attacked as a Columbus uh, these days? No, but I, I have a different point of view, which is home cooks around the world should and can sit at the same table and talk about cooking. And we all share the same, you know, issue, which is putting dinner on the table, right? I, I think when you're taking something that's highly authentic from someone and then selling it to another culture, I think that's maybe a little different uh, than saying, hey, you know, how can we cook better here based upon what we've learned from the way people cook in other places? So there's a difference between sharing and appropriating, I think is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Well, at the beginning of this interview, you talked about the food world being a mirror for what's going on in the culture. So what what happens to this? Does this we're now in the cultural appropriation mode, uh, the class discussion. Uh, does that all go away at some point and, and food becomes where it's headed, I think, which is more every man's table? I think the importance of cooking and feeding people will just continue to grow largely because in the digital revolution, the tangible matters more and more. And as we become incredibly separate but also incredibly connected in this digital world, food's going to continue to be that thing. And, you know, we're much better cooks now than I think we were uh, a generation ago. And food will, will hopefully become not the thing that we fight over so much but something that is just... Every day it won't be fetishized. It won't be used as a, a way to separate us from them. I think we're always going to be grappling with class and race in this country. I, I don't think there's there's any two ways around that. Maybe we just won't be doing it over food anymore. Last question. Who's that person you've not interviewed you're desperately trying to get through to that you want in your next uh, New York Times profile? You know, the hardest kitchen to get into right now is the White House kitchen. And uh, if I could actually get inside uh, the Trump White House kitchen, that would be probably that would be that would be a coup. I, um, you know, used to be they would just send you the menus for the first right. date dinner. Now it could only get released on double secret background from someone who leaked it. I mean, really? this, the White House kitchen is shut down like I have never seen. Gee, maybe they should hire a good PR person because a soft story about the kitchen would be a step forward. Well, there you go. Maybe you could have Donald Trump on your show, Chris. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Cooking with Donald and Melania. Now that's a story. Yeah. Okay, Kim, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. That was Kim Severson, food correspondent at the New York Times. You know, anyone who's been interviewed by a New York Times reporter knows that it's tricky business. 
The interviewer and the interviewee want to tell different stories, which of course makes it a bit like marriage. It's familiar, but it's also a negotiation. At best, both parties get some, but not all of what they want, which, as I said, sounds a lot like marriage. Now we're heading into the Milk Street kitchen to chat with Catherine Smart about how to upgrade the standard margarita with a little bit of chili and a little bit of pineapple. Hi, Catherine. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Do you love vacation stories? <laughs> Who doesn't? You're going to love this one. Who doesn't? So, about a year ago, I was on vacation in Tulum, Mexico with my wife, Melissa, and we went to Hartwood, which is this great restaurant right in that little strip of land. We didn't make a reservation. Of course, it's hard to get in without a reservation even there. So we had to sit at the bar for quite a while. And so I had a couple of these habanero pineapple margaritas, which looks like the typical tourist drink, except they were fabulous. So it was sweet, it was hot, it was spicy, it was just fabulous. So we came back to Milk Street, where it was cold (laughs) and rainy, and decided it was time to cheer ourselves up with that recipe. That's right, Chris. So we took inspiration from your lovely vacation. We can't all just jet off to Mexico, but we can all make a really delicious margarita. And once you've tried this margarita, you'll never go back to that really sad neon premix that you get at the grocery store that looks like the inside of a glow stick. So Chris, the key to this recipe is the super easy, simple syrup. So instead of just using sugar and water, we actually steep some orange zest, some lime zest, and also one habanero and one jalapeno. And so that gives a lot more flavor than a standard simple syrup, and it only takes 15 minutes. You actually don't want to steep it any longer than that because you can end up with a really spicy simple syrup. Oh, yeah, I'm going to steep it for an hour, of course. (laughs) And there's obviously pineapple in this as well. Yes, there's fresh pineapple. And then, of course, we should talk about the tequila because that really is the base. We love Reposado tequila because it's so smooth. You just want to make sure you're looking for something that's 100% agave. You could also use a Blanco tequila. It's going to be a little bit more acidic and have kind of stronger agave notes, which is why we prefer the Reposado. But do, you know, buy a decent agave tequila. So you've forgotten the most important part, which is, of course, the rim of the glass. Of course. Do you like salt on your margarita, Chris? Lots of salt. Okay, so we came up with, we sort of fancied up the traditional salt rim, and we added a little bit of sugar and also some chili powder. So you have a little bit of sweet to go with that salt and a little bit more spice from the chili powder. Now, bartenders know how to shake cocktails. (laughs) They really have it down. But is there a technique to do that and does it make a difference? There is, Chris, and it does make a difference. So most people skimp on the ice to start with. You want a full two cups of ice and you want to shake it really vigorously for like 10 to 15 seconds. Your hand should feel really cold, almost uncomfortably cold, and then you want to strain it into your prepared glass. And that's going to give you that nice froth that you're looking for in a homemade margarita. And as they say, drink it cold and drink it fast. Thank you, Catherine. You're welcome. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions and dilemmas with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to answer some questions from our listeners. I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Malton. Sarah, are you awake? Are you ready to go? Chris, I am ready to do this. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Jacinto calling from Montreal. Hi, Jacinto. How are you? I'm doing very well on yourself. Comment allez-vous? <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, <laughs> pull, bien. I'll pull out my French. Yes. There you are. Sarah got it. Yes. Okay, wonderful. How can we help you? Yes, well, I'm a newly subscribed member to Milk Street, and I have a baking question. Recently, I made a batch of the uh, rye chocolate chip cookies, which were amazing, by the way. And as I was reviewing the ingredients, I saw that it called for 12 tablespoons of salted butter. When I read through the recipe, I figured this has got to be a typo because, you know, for years you've been telling us to cook with unsalted butter. Yeah, what's with that, Chris? Unsalted butter, if you leave it, like, in the fridge, not frozen, for like a week or 10 days, it starts to go bad. It goes bad very quickly. Oh, really? Yes, it does. There are two things that drive me crazy. Knives that are not sharpened and butter that's half gone. And so salted butter, the reason they salted it, obviously, is, is was to keep pr- it. Preservative. And so then the refrigeration came along, and et cetera, et cetera. But first of all, unsalted butter on bread or toast is inedible. And secondly, salted butter keeps a long time. And then there's about an eighth a teaspoon of salt in a stick of butter, so it's not that much. So we use it for everything now. Wonderful. And finally, there's one other thing which uh, some of my cooks believe, that if you cook with salted butter, even though you could add salt with unsalted butter, somehow it improves the flavor of the food. The jury's out on that. But I always use salted butter because unsalted just doesn't last very long. It's nasty. I do agree that it doesn't last very long, but the trouble with salted butter is, yes, it's a preservative, but if the butter does start to go rancid, you're not going to notice this much because the salt gets in the way. So that's, It covers the taste. Yeah. All right. Someone told me that salted butter at one time was considered lower quality butter than unsalted. I don't think that's true anymore, of course. I would just use salted butter. And you know what? Even if you use salted butter in a recipe that calls for unsalted, there'll be so little additional salt, I don't think it would make that much difference. I would still adjust. I, I'd adjust, but it's not a huge deal. Yeah, well, I'm a salt lover, so you know what? It's not <laughs> a problem. Not a problem. So salt butter is the way to go. Oh, fantastic. I love okay. it. Okay. Thank you for calling. Merci. Au revoir. Yes. Au revoir. Yes. Au revoir. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Patricia from Vancouver. How can we help you? I have a question about using fresh ginger. Um, usually if I'm using it in a recipe, I'll grate it up uh, with like a microplane or mince it finely. Right. So I've recently just stopped peeling it before I do that because I don't see the point. <laughs> And so I was just curious if I'm out to lunch or why recipes always specify that you should peel your ginger. Here's what I do. I don't peel it. And, and this wastes, Sarah's going to... No, 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 I'm going to agree with you. We, I, 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 just I take, feel I, like we're going to agree. I take a chef's knife or a vegetable cleaver, Japanese vegetable. Anyway, I just cut off one side so you have a flat side. And just like you would, let's say, with a potato if you want to create French fries, right? Mm-hmm. And I just slice off the sides and the ends and you end up with about 30% less ginger. It cleans it right up, and you have perfectly shaped ginger, and it's easy to grate or easy to cut into pieces. The other way to do it, by the way, is to cut it into rounds. Again, I use a Chinese vegetable cleaver. and Put that on top, obviously broadside down, and whack it hard with your fist, and it smashes it immediately. It's like using smashed cloves And then you can use a cleaver just to whack it. You can go through it like three or four of these coins or five... 
you smash it and you can mince it right up in about 10 seconds. So you sort of started the whole thing. And you can create a massive amount of minced ginger in about 30 seconds. That works really That's well. That's a good trick. Mm. Yeah, it's a great I was going to say really about peeling it, though. I mean, although I think we agree with you that if it's really nice and fresh and thin-skinned, who needs to peel it? But my friend Grace Young, who's written all these books on stir-frying, peels her fresh ginger using a spoon. Because you, yeah, I've heard of that. You end up with much greater yield, um, yeah. and it works very uh, well. Okay, now, like you buy ginger. Actually, someone told me this. It was really interesting. Andrea Nguyen, she said, buy ginger that's really thick. Because if you get those gnarly gingers with all the different branches and stuff, you end up wasting most of it. But I, I would bet you 99% of the time people buy ginger and use less than half of it. You're probably right. And so this thing but, about wasting ginger. Well, <laughs> if you go through it really quickly. You know what's the best thing on the planet, though, for all those little bits, including the wasteful way you just no. said to cut it up, but where you just, you know. Were you being judgmental? Uh, no, never. Is you take all those bits, including the ones with the peels on them, you throw them in a pot with cold water and make ginger tea, which is the best thing on oh, the planet. Okay. Mm-hmm. I love that stuff. Patricia, have you ever done that? No, I haven't. Oh, it's um, so the good. The spoon thing always bothered me, too, because I was like, why should I use literally the dullest implement in my oh, entire kitchen? Oh, it so works. It's really something. fun. Just use Try the, it sometimes. Use the bloody knife. You, you know, you just use it. You do it at an angle. No, it's very quick. It's speedy. It works. Okay. Yeah. I'll give it a try, then. Okay. So now we've given you way much more information than you ever needed. But no, no, that's perfect. Do make ginger tea. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much. Take care. Have a good one. Yeah. Bye. Yes. Thanks. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a call anytime. That's 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or you can simply send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic, my top five favorite food books. Here are my five favorite books for your summer reading list. Number one, The Food and Wines of France by Ed Baer. Ed is the founder and editor of The Art of Eating, which talks about travel and food. In this book, he goes through 25 years of history traveling through France, talking to artisanal food producers. It's a one-of-a-kind read. Number two, Heat by Bill Buford. Bill lets you know what it's really like working in a restaurant. If you want to know about the heat and the pain and the suffering, read Heat. Number three, Apricots on the Nile by Colette Rosson. This is written back in the 90s, and it recounts her time in Cairo in World War II when she was living with relatives. It's a romantic book. It's about a time that has come and gone and about wonderful foods and wonderful cooking. Number four, The Billionaire's Vinegar by Benjamin Wallace. This is a story about a bottle of wine that went to auction for almost $200,000. Ostensibly, it was from Thomas Jefferson's lost cache of wine in Paris. And the question is, was it real or was it not? It's a great detective story. And number five, Sweet Bitter by Stephanie Dandler. She talks about the front of the house working in New York restaurants, not the back of the house. It's a whole different world, and she's a charming writer and tells a fabulous story. Is coffee an elixir, a poison, or just a hot drink? Dr. Aaron Carroll, professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column, has the answer. Dr. Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I hear that you're going to say something I'm going to love, which is, <laughs> well, you don't always say something I love, but, but coffee true. is healthy, and I drink a lot of coffee. Is that true? It is absolutely true. This is one of those pieces that I I actually agreed to do for the New York Times because so many people were asking, and I was sure that it was going to be one of the, I'll find some evidence for, some evidence against. But coffee is one of those things, the vast, vast, almost all the evidence is unbelievably positive. So much so that I think if you saw these kind of results for, for any kind of, you know, drug or supplement, we would be, you know, putting it in the water, or I guess with coffee we are, and, and prescribing it. I mean, just across the board, positive results. So uh, you, you were thinking there would be sort of a balanced, nuanced thing. Why did you get these results, find these results, and why is it so healthy? So, I mean, I thought it would be balanced because for almost my entire life, I've just heard people tell me that coffee was like a vice, something that you had to be concerned about. When I was a kid, it would, you know, quote unquote, stunt my growth, at least according to my parents, which is completely untrue. Um, Later, I heard that it was a diuretic and that you should be careful because you would wind up getting dehydrated if you drank too much coffee, which again is completely untrue. But 
The positive results are what are really stunning. So, I mean, just a couple of years ago, there was a huge meta-analysis or study of studies that looked at the long-term consumption of coffee and the risk of cardiovascular disease. We're talking like, you know, studies that include 1.3 million people. And basically, people who consumed about three to five cups of coffee were at the lowest risk of having any kind of cardiovascular event. Other studies have shown that People who drink more coffee have lower levels of stroke, lower levels of death, lower levels of heart failure. I mean, across the board. And these are sometimes even, you know, huge studies. With respect to cancer, the results are unbelievably positive. Hmm. Even, even with something like liver cancer. People who drank two cups a day was associated with a lower relative risk of liver cancer by more than 40%. Um, if you looked at further studies, it was lower levels of prostate cancer. It was lower levels of all kinds of, of other cancers. I mean, equivocally across the board with breast cancer, liver disease, it was associated with lower levels of progression to cirrhosis. If you had cirrhosis, it was associated with lower ris risks of death or developing liver cancer. It was associated with better response if you had hepatitis C. I mean, almost literally, again, across the board, even with neurologic problems like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease, it was associated with lower risks of problems if you were drinking more coffee. I mean, just amazing. So let me ask some obvious questions. Sure. First of all, digestibility. You know, coffee's acidic and it's not good for your stomach. Is there any truth to that? Not with respect to acidity in the sense that it's going to cause ulcers or anything like that. Um, there's really no good evidence, as far as I know, that shows that it leads to long-term problems. With respect to how well do you tolerate it, that's a very you know personal thing and not something we can probably study. I, I would say that none of this should be sort of evidence that if you don't drink coffee or don't like coffee, you should go out and start drinking it by the gallon. That's perfectly fine. My wife doesn't drink coffee. I'll never understand it, but so be it. But the good news is that if you like coffee, if you enjoy coffee, there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that shows that it's perfectly reasonable as a you know, part of a healthy diet and not something that people should be concerned about, that they're addicted to, or that it's some kind of vice that they have to stop. You probably don't know the answer to this because no one's done the research, but is there a difference, you think, in the benefits of drinking coffee versus a, a very dark tea? That is, tea and coffee have totally different components or active ingredients? Tea has benefits associated with it. It's not as well studied as coffee, but I'll also say that the results don't seem to be as large for tea as it is as, as it is for coffee, that it's not just the caffeine, it's not just somehow the way it's prepared. There seems to potentially be something about coffee that makes it a better beverage and with respect to health. So this isn't just people who drink coffee are healthier, it's they actually did double-blind drinking coffee versus not. The vast majority are not randomized controlled trials, but they have done some randomized controlled trials, specifically looking at more process measures like things like cholesterol level or things like, you know, glucose levels with respect to diabetes. They're much smaller, but again, even those show no harm. Even if we can't prove, and we'll probably never be able to prove, as you're saying, in a randomized controlled trial that it reduces your risk of death. We have to remember that the, most people's concerns are that coffee is going to hurt us or that coffee is somehow damaging. Right. And the collected evidence that we see from epidemiologic studies show that it's very, you know, if anything, it leans in the positive direction. And certainly there's no danger to see, even in the randomized controlled trials. So I would feel very comfortable in saying that people really don't need to be concerned. This includes, by the way, even pregnant women where, you know, studies have shown that mm. up to two cups of coffee are perfectly reasonable uh, for a pregnant woman. There's really no danger to the pregnancy, and, and that's even the recommendation of the American College of Obstetricians. So the last time I gave up coffee was in 1995, <laughs> mm -hmm. I, and I was uh, publishing a magazine called Natural Health. So I, I decided to get in the swing of it. I gave up coffee. And as you know what I'm about to say, I had just wicked headaches for about three weeks. Mm -hmm. Does that indicate any problem with coffee? So that could be, I mean, to some extent, you could have become normalized to caffeine and sort of that your body had become adjusted to it. And, and when people sometimes have migraines, one of the therapies that we sometimes use is actually caffeine and, huh. and recommending to do that. In fact, it's, it's one of the ingredients in some of the uh, migraine 
you know, pain relievers that you can buy over the counter is caffeine because it causes vasoconstriction or your blood vessels to constrict, which actually can help reduce headaches. So just as mm. caffeine can help with that, lack of caffeine can produce the opposite effect where you might have some extra vasodilation or more blood flow than usual, which can lead to headaches. So it can be that you can become adjusted to certain levels of caffeine and therefore depriving yourself of that could lead to headache. But that could be a problem with drinking too much diet soda. That could be a problem with drinking too much tea. That could be a problem with really doing anything that gives you too much of something where you become adjusted to it and then reduce it very quickly. But why did you give up coffee? Was it because you felt that it was unhealthy or not good for you? Because the evidence would say the opposite. Because I was a complete idiot. <laughs> um, so, so the next time I walk into a Dunkin' Donuts, I shouldn't worry about the coffee. I should just worry about the donuts. I would say it also depends what you add into the coffee because, of course, you know, some of the coffee beverages you can buy in places like that and, you know, Starbucks and everywhere else can be, you know, part coffee but then vast, you know, amounts of cream, sugar, or whatever else you're putting in there. That's not quite the same thing. But the coffee itself, no, you shouldn't consider that anywhere near what, what donuts would be. Dr. Aaron Carroll, um, I'm on my fourth cup of coffee today, and I feel good about it. Thank you. Good. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll, professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. You know, I've heard both sides of almost every food argument. Red wine is good, alcohol is bad. Margarine is better than butter, and then it's not. Coffee is the bane of modern diets, and now we can drink it to our health. Fat was the enemy, now it's sugar. As someone once said, all things in moderation, including moderation. I think that's one prescription that's definitely worth following. Thanks for listening to Mill Street Radio. If you missed us, you can always listen to our podcast, by the way, it's free, on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. And by the way, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You'll automatically get our shows every week on your smartphone. You can also head over to 177milkstreet.com. That's where you can download each week's recipe, learn more about Milk Street, and get free recipes. Also subscribe to our magazine. That's it for now. We'll be back next week. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugars. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.